All right, ladies and gentlemen, with that introduction, no further. And if you're wondering why I picked Van Halen in Panama, it's because our esteemed guest speaker today, my good friend Larry McDonald, is actually in Panama. And I'm probably going to want to start off by asking Larry how is everything going down there. But let me just get up O'Hare first to be the co-speaker. O'Hare, I hope you got that. So, Larry, um, great that you're uh, with us today. Um, for those of you that don't know him, Larry McDonald is um, the proprietor and uh, the guy behind uh, the Bear Traps Report, which is a very unique, high-level uh, product. Uh, has 600 of the most um, sophisticated institutions, family offices, um, hedge funds, real money accounts. Uh, in his chat, he basically has a Bloomberg chat with 600 institutions. They're all talking to each other, at least talking through Larry. And it really takes on the role of what you would be experiencing if you were at a high level at a buy side institution. It's a very unique and differentiated point of view. And I have to say, I've, I've, I've been a client of Larry's for a while. I find it very stimulating. It gives you a perspective that you may not have. It's easy to get caught up in your own thinking. Larry is giving you very many looks, different looks at the basket from different perspectives. And it's really very stimulating. And um, again, I have no commercial relationship with Larry, but uh, I strongly urge any of you who are interested to reach out to him. Uh, he's, um, you know, he's on Twitter. He's, he's got his own web website, of course, but it's the bear traps report. Can't recommend it strongly enough. Uh, and, you know, I know Larry's willing to put people on trial to see if they actually, uh, enjoy the product before making a commitment. Uh, Larry is a uh, New York Times bestselling author, um, formerly at Lehman. I, I don't know what it is with all these smart guys like Jared Dilling yourself and some others come out of Lehman, but uh, wow, a lot of uh, intellectual uh, uh, firepower emanating. Most, must have been great working at Lehman back in the day. At any rate, Larry's one of the sharpest cookies uh, observers of the scene when it comes to ma things macro. And, you know, in the kind of market that we're in right now, you ignore macro at your peril. Everyone's a stock picker until it doesn't work anymore. And, you know, I've been in markets for four decades. I incorporate macro as a very critical uh, ingredient in my approach. Yes, of course, I analyze companies. But uh, to not have a macro opinion in this environment is just idiotic, suicidal. At any rate, Larry, great to have you here. Before we get started on any of the serious stuff, um, you've been down in Pan tell us your experience with tell, tell us your experience with Panama Larry. How long have you been down there and what's it like? And importantly, for those of us who haven't been there who don't really appreciate it, what's like being on the ground. What's it like living in Panama, Larry? Well, it's uh you know, we just spend um maybe a month or two in the wintertime. Down here we're mainly in Florida, but I like it, you know, it's New York. We did fifteen years in New York and uh, paid a lot of taxes and and uh you know, nannies in New York and the lifestyle, uh, the Ubers, you know, everything is it's a, it's a great lifestyle. But when you have kids and uh, and, you know, COVID hits, you, you really don't want to be in uh, in New York anymore. <laughs> so so you've been going down to Panama, what, just for vacation over the years? And then what you made, you made a semi-permanent shift when COVID hit. Is that right? Yeah, well, my my, my wife's family's from Panama and uh, she. She came to the States when she was younger, got her master's at Harvard. Uh, and uh, we always, we had a property down here since probably 2012 or so. And uh, it's, we just kind of came down during the, during the uh, debacle with COVID 
and uh, we got the kids in what well, I think I think the best school in this part of the world. And uh, so in winter, you know, this this next winter came along, and we said, you know, well, let's stay another winter in Panama. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'll be I'll be back up in New York probably. I think uh, May, June, you know, for the rest of the summer. And, and, and what's the quality of life like either, you know, schools, safety, uh, restaurants, tourism? What's it like living down there? Is it pretty easy living? Oh, yeah. It's it's um, it's a lot like uh, Miami. I mean, it's very similar. Right. Yeah, good, great quality of life. And and uh, it's a good group of um, international, you know, Americans, expats, you know, people from all over the world are here. So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Venezuelans, a lot of a lot of people from Chile, Peru, uh, the elections, and you know, you've had a big uh, the last ten years. You've had a you know very disruptive election cycle in uh, obviously Argentina, Chile, and Peru. Let's hope that doesn't happen to you know Brazil, but a lot of uh, a lot of wealth has left uh, some of these countries in Latin America. Right, that's great. Okay, so let's move on to the issue before the house. Um, Larry puts out a product uh, on a weekly basis called the Bear Traps Report, the Turning Point, which it's really a tour de force, uh, 25, 30 pages of uh, really fascinating charts and commentary. And it's really quite impressive. Larry, how, how, how long does it take you to put this together? I'm always blown away by how much information is in this thing. Well, you know, it's not a newsletter. It's really what we're trying to do is give, give uh, investors a lens on a buy side conversation. So. Uh, you know, there's just too many newsletters out there. It's more um, the sell side is basically tries to convince people uh, things to buy, things to sell based on their inventory, based on their banking schedule, you know, based on the relationship. So you get a very tainted view of markets from the banks. Uh, and the, the best example of this is Fed policy, right? Uh, the sell side are really pawns. So when the Fed wants to move the market or test the market out, they'll basically convince, uh, I think, the sell side behind the scenes to really increase their estimates on, on rate hikes or balance sheet reduction, and which is completely, as we've seen over and over and over again over the last decade, completely bogus. All the assumptions in 2015 were wrong. All this, Every single time, all the assumptions. And Goldman told us in 2018 that the Fed was going to hike rates in 2019 four times and do 50 balance sheet, 50 billion a balance sheet uh, reduction a month. And that never happened. So, so the, the sell side is, is really used by uh, a whole bunch of different people, whether it be companies trying to sell bonds or the Fed trying to manipulate or just not just manipulate, but try to really trial balloon the market. And uh, we'd rather have a conversation with buy side individuals that have skin in the game and, and kind of recap the main thesis trends that we're seeing on the buy side around the world. That's that's terrific. I mean, it's, it's clear. Yours is a very differentiated product. And what I really love about it is I think we're all visual animals to a degree. And the number of charts you have in here, I mean, I think we, I, I learned by visually, I think most people do, it, it truly is eye-opening. So let's start with some of, the, some of the things that are top of mind right now. And if you don't mind, Larry, I'm just going to read the first paragraph from, um, from the report. I thought it was particularly, um, particularly good this week. Um, it's always good, but particularly really captured the zeitgeist of the market. Uh, people have been kind of uh, wondering, like, my God, we've seen this big counter-trend rally. What's going on? 
you even have the likes of Jim Cramer coming out on Friday saying the bear market's over. Um, and I'm reminded that, and we've talked about a lot in this room, that bear markets are not the opposite of bull markets. You have many counter-trend rallies. John Roke, who is a friend of this room, uh, great technician from 22V, pointed out in the 2000-2002 bear market when NASDAQ fell 80%. Nevertheless, 46% of the days were up days. You had 15 counter-trend rallies of over 10%, 10 counter-trend rallies over 15%. And I think your, 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 your piece this week, and I just want to read a few sentences here from the beginning, quote, they turned the machines back on, shouted the man on CNBC. When you are in the middle of a significant secular shift in investor psychology, one of historic proportions, there will always be those moments where market participants still believe the dream is still alive. Jim Cramer, please call your office. It's not today. It's still yesterday is the thinking. The buy the dip crowd rushes back into a short covering bonanza and stocks make an extremely unhealthy vertical move higher. This is not how real bottoms are formed. Think of Apple. Apple equity just experienced its largest nine day move higher in at least 10 years, up close to 17 percent. With the S&P 500 up nearly 10 percent in nine days, we file this under 2Q. 2000 action, exactly what Mr. Roke was referring to. The index closed, uh, you know, at the ominous 61.8% retracement uh, level of the recent decline, heavy resistance at 4,600 with tons of supply, of supply above. The get me even and get me out crowd is lurking. The market dynamic looking forward is simple. Any new capital coming to play has chosen to fight the Fed. Okay, so I could go on, but I think boys and girls in the room, you get the gist. So, Larry, um, I think you and I are like mind that we're, we're really witnessing a regime change and life is not linear. Um, you know, it's 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 two steps forward, one step back or whatever. So where do you think we are in this whole thing? Is it 2Q2000? Like, do you I, I always I keep referring to the market as, as, as offering return free risk. And, and what's your take on, on where we are in markets right now, Larry? Well, you know, let's let's think about the world, the planet Earth. You've got. Upwards, if you think of 25 basis point rate hikes, there's been 60, maybe probably 75 uh, rate hikes around the world before the Fed actually hiked once or twice. Right now, we've done 25 bips. So the Fed's way behind. They're embarrassed. You've got CPI close to 8% with a 10-year treasury little, you know, up, up around two and a half. So... You've got just a real embarrassing situation for the Fed. So the higher equities go, the more powder Powell has to get aggressive. And so we were lectured the last three years, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight. I mean, so and now we're in a dynamic where Citigroup, who you know is a trailing, you know, a trailing indicator. They're now calling for 50, 50, 50. Like, so 150 bips of rate hikes before the, the four, before the fourth quarter. So if you look at financial conditions, like whether it be commercial real estate, high yield, if you look at credit under the surface, it's very clear that the ability of the Fed to, to pull this off and get aggressive without breaking something is, uh, is almost 0%. And so... I think the market's right now in a very unhealthy spot because you, you don't want to see, you know, 16% rallies in you know, eight days. You want to see 
a market make uh, you know a bottom over a longer period of time look at look at look and some parts of the market have done that look at the natural gas equities right uh, look at uranium equities look at coal equities you know there's so many different hard assets out there that have made just beautiful longer term bottoms where that are incredibly bullish formations with a macro story that's very bullish but the index itself uh, you know rallying this much uh, out of out of capitulation, you know, out of like a war type environment where we were looking at World War III risk it was out there you know, a month ago. And to, to rally this much this fast is very much like fourth quarter 2007. Fourth quarter 2007, the third, third fourth quarter, I lived through it. I was trading through it. And we ripped um, 13, 14% in five weeks. And you know, I'm con- I'm, when I wrote my book, I'm convinced that's what blew up Bear Stearns because a lot of the traders were long the illiquid assets. So you're long, you know, mortgage-backed securities. You're long leveraged loans. So you're long all this illiquid assets, and your sh- your shorts to hedge those assets were very liquid, the in- indices. And we talked to a number of banks over the last banks and uh, and 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 buy side accounts, like probably ten different ones. And there's no question that risk managers were forcing desk heads to double up on hedges, you know, three weeks ago in the hole. You know, the risk manager will always come over at the worst time. And it's happened, it's happened to me. It's happened to anybody that's traded professionally. Uh, at the worst time, the risk manager, you get the tap on the shoulder and they try to force you to double up your hedges. And it's always, always at the worst time. And so that was that famous Thursday night when the nuclear power plant was blowing up and in that uh, was near the lows in the market, nuclear power plants blowing up in uh, in, in in Ukraine, and uh, and now we're you know 15, 16, 17 percent higher in some of these equities, 30 percent higher, and uh, and a lot of these equities are higher because uh, hedges came off, and now all those hedges that were forced on to traders and risk takers have started to come off over the last couple of weeks, and I think that's that's not new buyers coming in. That's really some chasers coming in after you know a meaningful amount of uh, short covering. So, so Larry, it, 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 you know, let's go back to the Fed and inflation in the economy. And you've been a big proponent of uh, the commodities, energy. I mean, you've totally nailed this. And just hats off to you, salute you, Larry. Totally, totally nailed this. And this is not a trade. This is an investment. And I know when it gets overbought. You're not a one-trick pony, but because of overbought, you say take some profits and recycle back, waiting for the RSI and everything to come back in. You lay it back out again. It's all great. So you've gotten the big picture cycle. You nailed it, all right. And if, so if you if you and I think you're you're bullish in the bigger scheme of things on the commodity complex. And you mentioned we got inflation at eight percent going higher. And really, the only way, in my humble opinion, you rein this in is you, you you've got to have a big slowdown in growth. And so when you look at financial conditions. Um, and in particular, one thing I was looking this morning, someone camera was in your report or somewhere. I saw a picture of balance sheets. It showed how much it showed how much cash on the, uh, on the, on the balance sheet companies have. And it's really quite robust. It kind of makes me think that rates may have to go even higher to rein in financial conditions. And so how does the, I guess the rally in risk assets, uh, how, if at all, does it help the Fed? With trying to slow the economy, I think it's in fact quite the opposite. What would your response to that be? Well, yeah, the balance the, the balance sheets are much better now because you know companies have been able to term out 
financing relative to past cycles. So the last 2020-21 was an incredible period for companies that were able to um, sell bonds. So that that's reduced a decent amount of credit risk in the market uh, relative to past cycles. But um, it, there's just so much debt. Uh, so you can look at corporate, you could say corporate debt's in a better, better spot, sure. But, you know, commercial mortgage-backed securities, MBS, uh, you know, I mean, there's just so much, so many levels of debt that with this much debt, if you try to, remember, the last hiking cycle was nine hikes over 36 months. Nine hikes over 36 months. And guess what? He broke the market in 2018 when he tried to, you know, do quantitative tightening and rate hikes at the same time. He broke the market. Equities went down 20%. Now we're going to do a speed that is double that. We're going to do nine hikes, according to the street, in uh, 12 months and start QT, right? So, you know, it's just common sense that the Fed's not going to be able to pull this off and financial conditions will start to, you know, are starting to have tightened in certain spots. They're, they're, they're much, obviously much tighter than, than they were a couple of months ago. But yeah, we're not going to be able to, uh, you know, chew gum and walk at the same time. In other words, quantitative tightening and 50-50-50. So with that, it's a, that's, that's a really cogent way of laying it out. So with that in mind, Larry, I mean, doesn't that, does that partly inform your bullish view on commodities, I mean, not to mention, you know, structural underinvestment and so on and so forth. But if they can't tighten the way they should and conditions will be less tight than they otherwise would be, does that portend we're going to have, you know, negative rates for longer than we would have otherwise? And therefore, it's a very bullish backdrop for commodities. Maybe frame the commodity argument, because I, I think the macro uh, you were just talking about with Fed policy is very important in considering the outlook for uh, commodities. And there are a lot of friends in the room here who have a bullish disposition towards commodities. So how does your view on the Fed and monetary policy impact your commodity view? Well, 530s went inverted today and uh, 210s are 14 basis points away. So that's the two-year treasury versus the 10-year treasury is almost inverted. 530s is inverted. Uh, your XLP versus XLY, your consumer dis- staples versus discretionary uh, staples have been outperforming for months. So all, every recession indicator out there is, is pointing toward uh, a Fed put it, pushing us in, into recession you know, at, at a very fast pace. Now, the Fed has only done one 25 basis point rate hike, but the, the, the yield curve is telling you that this, the amount of rate hikes they've put on the table is just too much. And so that's why 530s are inverted. And if you, you want to be very careful being fully invested when 530s are inverted, when staples are outperforming discretionary, when credit uh, in, in, in spots is, is, you know, look at just look at high yield versus look at high yield versus, versus equities. Look at commercial mortgage-backed securities versus equities. You look at Look at the advanced decline line on the New York Stock Exchange. It's been rolling over since last June, and you know it's it's not. There's just there's just so many healthy unhealthy things that tell you you, you want to be very careful. It's okay to be in certain spots, like commodities, right? Uh, now we have this COVID scare in 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 uh, Asia, 
right? So China's $14 trillion economy. It's getting hit by a, a pretty nasty COVID scare. Once again, the COVID, the Delta variant, the Omicron, and now this latest COVID scare have bailed out the NASDAQ like over and over again. And so we had, we're, we're once again into our fourth commodity sell-off here. Oil today, metals. This is literally, this is a broken record. This happened last year. It's happened like the last 18 months. Everyone's been bullshit, okay? And we saw this with Omicron. We saw it with the with Delta variant. And now we're going through it again. And it's really the dollar has been bailed out by these types of global incidents around COVID so many times. And so the dollar is getting... This once again, the dollar getting a, a, a bid because you're you're slowing down. If you know, oil's oil's off almost ten bucks today, because if you're if you're really slowing down in Asia aggressively because of lockdowns, um, you know that that gets you a deflationary force. And once again, you're you're getting a stronger dollar. You're getting a weaker commodity today. You want to use every one of these has been an opportunity to get longer coal names, longer natural gas names, longer uranium names, longer metals. You know, this, the, uh, the silver miners are off 4 or 5% today. So use, use these uh, events to your advantage. That's, that, that's, 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 that's very well put, Larry. Just so you know, because it's your first time in this room, there's a group in here. We call them, they call themselves the Canadian Oil Mafia. It's a bunch of hardcore uh, Canadians who... Uh, aggressively you know follow and and, 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 and promote I get I promote too harsh a word but are big fans of Canadian oil stocks because they have um, they're more attractive they're 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 more lowly valued have slow, slower decline curves um, you know and longer reserve lives and I can go on and on also benefiting from weak Canadian dollars so the, the oil case is, is, is been rehearsed many a time over and over again in this room so Larry um, if you, you, you look backwards, we've been through this great moderation, disinflation. I came in the business in 1981, and you have a whole generation of investors who've known nothing but falling interest rates. And the implications for that, you think about the 60-40 portfolio, you've written a lot about this. And now we're in this brave new world, and I don't know where you come out on, uh, I think I do, but... When you look at where valuations are on risk assets and the outlook for, um, you know, we're not going to have the, the, the assistance of uh, steadily declining, steadily increasing PE ratios. What does it lead you to believe? Obviously, I'm asking a leading question, but what does it lead you to think about equities more broadly? Not just right here, right now, but you know, I have a real visceral contempt or, or bad reaction to when I hear Jeremy Siegel talk about stocks for the long term. It doesn't matter what, what your entry price is. You always should buy it. You're going to make 9% a year. Clearly, entry point matters. So where you sit here right now, you know, right here, for the average guy in the room and, you know, the people just trying to figure out what to do with their hard-earned savings, what would you tell them? I mean, the 60-40 portfolio is not going to help you. I don't think you want to own an index fund. So what would you tell the average investor, Larry? Well, yeah, it's, it's, you've got the last decade, right? You had Brexit's trade wars, COVID's. Uh, you had Delta variants, you had the last 10 years, uh, Omicron, Brexit's trade wars. So you've had all these different events that supported the dollar and you had massive deflationary forces. Now you have 
labor is more powerful in, in the United States for a whole bunch of reasons. That's a whole other segment. But it's, it's very clear that labor is more powerful. It's very clear that supply chains are damaged. It's very clear that the war, even if there's, even if there's literally a peace tr- deal tomorrow, that the, the, the effect on the war on, on commodities globally uh, and inflation is going to be here for another 18 months. So CPI, everything's going to you know, be trending higher um, relative to the past decade. So, so the problem is everybody is the most of the market is set up in a 2010 to 2020 portfolio where people are still long the fangs, people are still long the indexes and they're very underweight, real hard asset companies. Uh, take Southwest Energy, for example. You're talking about, you know, a re- free cash flow yield of 7%. Uh, you're talking about um, a company that you know, came up last year with EBITDA of w- almost, two, almost $2 billion of EBITDA. And on a, you know, as of, as of a week ago, it was a $6 billion market cap equity. Uh, with a much, you know, very, very low leverage balance sheet relative to the last cycle. And you've got this incredible cash flow in these companies that are now finally, you know, starting to put CapEx to work in in the natural gas space into a massive secular change where you have European demand coming in to the U.S. natural gas space for the first time. Um, So my my point is, is that you want to be, you know, wary of indexes that have, like the S&P right now, has Apple and Tesla at the top. That's it's three, four, call it four trillion bucks in two stocks that have moved up, you know, anywhere between 42% and in nine trading days for Tesla and 20%, you know, 19, 18% for Apple. So your indexes are filled with this garbage uh, relative to where, you, you can buy real hard asset companies with incredible cash flow. South, we, we did a trade alert last week on Southwest Energy, SWN. Uh, but there are just so many spots in the market that offer, you know, real cash flow value, uh, under-owned, because, the, the, you know, these are, these are equities that have been kind of hated for a long time. And everybody's along the same things. So, yeah, I'd just be very wary of the indexes, and I'd be – I'd look for spots within the market, whether it be uranium, whether it be coal. Uh, Arch Coal's been one of our names. Uh, Mosaic's been one of our names. Tech Resources has been one of our names. But um, value names in the commodity space have just kicked the NASDAQ's ass the last 18 months, two years. If it was a fight, they would have stopped it. Uh, Larry, that's brilliant. And you didn't know this, but again, you're amongst friends here. I think your fan club's going to become even bigger. Uh, I referred to affectionately to the Canadian oil mafia before, um, and we're going to have some of those guys question you in a minute or two. But I, I think you're going to be inducted uh, as, as honorary colonel right away because th- you're singing from their prayer book. I mean, I mean, Canada's filled with stocks, the likes of what you're talking about. And with respect, I mean, some of these guys have names that will put Southwest to southwest to to shame i mean it's just they you you couldn't make them happier and and boys and canadian oil mafia i did not pay larry to say that i had no idea what he was going to say but i i I think he's spot on so uh larry um don't you think based on what you just said that whereas active managers have had a really hard time 
the last few years. And we know in the aggregate, active managers are underperforming. It has to be because of transaction costs. But it's been particularly difficult. And you have the tyranny of the indices. So doesn't it kind of mean that if you're going to be an active manager um, going forward and you weren't constrained to having a low tracking error versus uh, the benchmark, wouldn't this just be a fabulous time to be an active portfolio manager? Yeah, active active's going to active's going to really it's not going to crush passive, but it's going to it's going to it's going to steal a lot of market share from passive over the next five, you know, it's the next 18 months to 2 years because where where passive really does well is when the Fed is behind your back. The Fed's cutting, the Fed's easing, um, and the indexes go up. And you know, there's a lot of capital that that has to be allocated into passive. But when you run into a rate hiking cycle and you know the street will tell you that stocks go up when the fed's hiking rates yeah sure that's that's true if you look at the nat last you know 15 hiking cycles but when you have a hiking cycle that is is literally three standard deviations faster tightening than anything we've experienced in the last 20 years that's you can't compare that to like you know this research that's out there about how stocks do during rate hiking cycles so it, so a passive portfolio uh, does well in, uh, you know, when the Fed's in a, in, a, in, a, in a directional easing phase over a long period of time, where active management and value uh, will do much better in this kind of environment where you're going to have to pick sectors better, you're going to have to pick stocks better. The, index, the indexes are probably tapped out here for the next three years. Okay, so you, you're probably... Whoa, 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 stop, Larry, stop, Larry. You said the next three years, you think the, the, I mean, I happen to think it's going to be worse than that. But you personally believe we were just spitballing. You think the indices aren't going anywhere for say on a three year view? Yeah, that, well, it's happened so many. I mean, how many times have we seen this in our, in our careers? I mean, I mean, this happened, you know, it, it happened multiple times um, in the last 20 years where you go through a three year, you have an incredible run, uh, you have a big passive flow, and then you run into, uh, either an inflationary period like this or some dynamic, whether it be 9-11 or, you know, changes the whole psychology around uh, flows. And, you know, this this is a lot. This is a lot for the market to, you, you could say the market climbs the wall of worry. Sure. But, you know, you, you, you can't say don't fight the Fed. The Fed has your back. And then, you know, want to be long indexes when the Fed is aggressively hiking uh, into a new inflation cycle that is much more sustainable than the last, you know, the last five inflation cycles. Totally, totally agree. Hey, so Larry, let's go in a slightly different direction. I want to get some questions in here. We've got some really smart people in the room. Um, but one or two more questions. What's the chance that um, we see things in markets, we continue to see things in markets that you might be afraid to speak about in polite company for fear of scaring the women and children, but or, or, or more more appropriately, the men in the white coats might come for you saying, well, Larry's totally lost off his rocker. Specifically, you know, the idea that we look at what happened to the price of crude in 2Q of 2000 or what the nickel price just did, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that we're coming up against, that, that markets are broken, that price discovery has, has, has not been in evidence, and therefore you've had tremendous misallocations in so many different asset classes. And then as prices try to normalize, things are just going to break and you're going to see more weird stuff happening. And, and that just gives you enhanced volatility. Any thoughts around that question, Larry? 
Well, we, we run a Bloomberg chat like we talked about earlier with about 650 institutional investors in 23 countries. And one of the things that's helpful to me is when something happens uh, like the SoftBank whale, right, where that was September 2020, uh, or, or Archegos, right, that was last Easter. Uh, you'll, you'll hear it in the chat first. And I'll never forget the day I heard, you know, I heard about Archegos probably like maybe about eight or nine days before it hit the tape. And I didn't even know, I didn't even know what Archegos was. I didn't know who Bill Wang was. I couldn't believe that he, the, the original, you know, when you process, when your brain processes a piece of information for the first time like that, and you can smell over the years through experience of, of taking risk, that this is a, like potentially a, a game changing story, whether it be the SoftBank whale or Archegos or there's a whole bunch of these things that happen throughout every year. But I just remember about a year ago today processing that Archegos thing and then the conversation in the chat. So we have 650 institutional investors in 23 countries. It's pretty, it's not easy, but when you see, when you see two or three or four brilliant portfolio managers in three different countries kind of giving color on the same thing, it's, you can very quickly realize that you're, you're, you're onto something and this is potentially something big because it's not a rumor, it's not a story. Like literally you've got credible people that are hearing things from different angles. And then sure enough, a week later, it's, you know, it's front page of the Financial Times. But yeah, so, so we, you know, this nickel story uh, is, is, is one that's, you know, that was one that we experienced like three, two, three weeks ago when we started to hear about the leverage that this, uh, <laughs> this, 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 these participants were able to inflict a lot of pain. And it's similar to Archegos. It's similar to, um, you know, some of the abuses, you know, they're just big client that, that, that really just, we used to call it, we used to call it this, we used to call this dynamic uh, Goldman penis envy at Lehman where, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you think of like the, some of the smaller banks and institutions will give a big player like that a lot more, a lot more balance sheet, a lot more room. So Credit Suisse, for example, will let a Bill Wang do a lot more. They'll give him a lot more, you know, bells and whistles in the, in the prime brokerage area than Goldman would. And so you have smaller investment banks or smaller commodity trading houses that are trying to capture market share in a bull market. And they will extend and kind of break into kind of not cheat, but just kind of like, bend the rules around risk. And that's clearly what happened with this iron, you know, trade, uh, you know, this situation with iron and, um, and the, the LME. And it's very similar to Bill Wang. I mean, what he was able to do at Credit Suisse, he, he basically went around the street to five or six different places and, you know, was able to get one of them to get, give him the best terms. And so, yeah, so that's, you know, we're always looking for those, those types of dynamics around, nickel and iron ore and, and, you know, trades that are, you know, that are going to really have an impact on the market because then, you know, three, four days later, we saw, you know, the bonds of different commodity trading houses trading, you know, these are relatively decent quality bonds trading into the eighties and seventies. And so then you've got counterparty risk, not just from Russia, 
not just from Ukraine and all those banks and counterparties, but now you have a commodity trading house and everybody that's exposed to that institution. So it's it's very quickly you can have this counterparty risk that grows, uh, you know, very very fast across multiple different different areas, and that's why we had that kind of sell off of the last month or two of the last you know sixty days or thirty days was because you really could for a while there the market couldn't figure out where all the bodies are buried. Right. That's great. Larry. One more question from me and then we're going to go to the audience. Um, and I was uh, something you said just prompted this thought. I recall in a, uh, a conference call you did for clients, um, a zoom thing a couple of weeks ago, I think I participated in it. You were talking about how the, the perspective you get from your six, 600 plus buy side clients around the world. It's a good sounding board for a preview of coming attractions. You were just talking before about how, you know, they might act as radar for incoming missiles. But when you, I remember you explaining a few weeks ago um, the, the, the sort of testing of ideas amongst this sort of high-level network of clients. So whether it's being, being open-minded to the idea that oil could go up a lot or uranium. And you were speaking a couple of weeks ago, I recall, about this idea that the dollar may all of a sudden be on the verge of possibly losing its, uh, you know, uh, reserve currency status, loss of dollar hedge of money, so on and so forth. That for the first time, clients are actually talking possibly about, gee, what do we do other than the dollar? Do we buy gold? Do we decide about something else? So could you just speak specifically to, I mean, how that dynamic works? Because again, I think it makes your network particularly worthwhile. It's a good, it's a good sort of focus group. And then also just just what leads you to think about the dollar and gold. And then I'm going to be done with my questions. Thank you, Larry. Well, you know, it's the dollar is is not going to lose its, you know, <laughs> king status overnight. Um, but what's happened is the dollar has grown over the last you know couple of decades to such a fierce spot that when the government of the United States uses that weapon, uh, through, you know, through sanctions and, and hits a number of countries over the head with this club, it's the type of weapon that should be used once a decade. But when you use it, you know, repeatedly over different emerging market countries over the course of, say, five, six, seven years, and in this case, it was for very good reason, right? But the, pr- the problem is they've been using this club and hitting different countries over the head uh, for much of the last you know decade, and so it's a club that they've used a lot, and they probably use it too much. And now, the the consensus that I'm seeing and kind of a new trend, and we you're right, we we see these trends early because you know whether it be with uranium in 2020, we started to see really you know different investors hire ACG Analytics in Washington. You know, different investors really digging into uranium and nuclear power uh, as potential market share. So we see these trends early. And this this whole the, the Fed is has been embarrassed by the dollar over and over again. They've tried to, every time they've tried to execute monetary policy. We've had what's called the global wrecking ball. So 2015, the dollar moved so much so fast that China had to deval caused a pretty decent crisis in the fourth quarter. 2018 dollar rips again. The Fed had a difficult time executing monetary policy, and so the dollar is 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 not going away. But if you're Saudi Arabia, and even though you're an ally of the United States, you're looking at 
which has happened to Russia, the canceling of of a major commodity producer, you know, you're going to just think twice about how much of an allocation you put toward the dollar this this time. And I think one of the biggest risk metrics in the market now for for inflation is there's a there's a tremendous amount of complacency around canceling Russia. And I can say, listen, Putin's a bad guy. Uh, I, I can't say enough bad things about him. But the, 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 the Russia, Russia and the Ukraine have such a control over, you know, so many different commodities, different percentages of the global of the global allocation of global needs, uh, phosphates, whatever. We can go along on and on. It's very dangerous to just, you know, everybody it's, it's everybody's just trying to fall over themselves to cancel Russia. And Russia will retaliate in the case of the case of uranium or whatever. And it, it's just it's just going to take our inflation problem and just turn, you know, turn it up, you know, three, four or five more notches. So we're the United States of America has spent the last 20, 30 years canceling, you know, trying to cancel oil and gas, trying to cancel, obviously, steel production. We've canceled <coughs> aluminum. We don't make anything anymore. OK. And so. A country like that has to be very careful, um, you know, with the way they use the dollar as a weapon, because if countries that are commodity rich uh, retaliate when we're already in the fourth inning of an inflation cycle, the the <laughs> the potential uh, cobra effect can be catastrophic. That's great. Thanks, Larry. All right. So we're now going to go to questions from the uh, uh, from, from the others in the room. We have a lot of really sharp guys here, Larry. Um, we're going to do this in order. We're going to do Deerpoint and then Abe and then Marcellus. Deerpoint, good to see you. What's your question, Deerpoint, for Larry? Um, hey, George. Thank you. Um, Larry, I, I just wanted to maybe uh, ask you about the dollar, um, at, at least in the short term. Do you see, um, you know, outside of like, and I, I know that Brent uh, from Santiago and, and Jeff have talked to this, the, the inability, broadly speaking, for the fractional reserve like banking system to grow lending um, is going to lead, let's say, to a shortage of, of dollars in the global monetary system, which maybe in the short term could lead to a, uh, a spike um, within the dollar, um, just as people have the or, or as you know, we have an inability to have access to dollars um, as that supply gets like uh, constrained um, outside of the uh, the ability of the banking sector outside of the ability of the banking uh, banking sector. Sorry, to uh, to grow lending growth. Yeah, so the dollar shortage story has been you know has been been out there for you know for a couple of years now, and there are periods where the thesis holds up well. Um, the thesis was you know, thoroughly embarrassed. I mean, it was just so embarrassing to watch the thesis collapse when the Fed just opened up swap lines. And at the end of the day, the dollar shortage thesis is a fight the Fed thesis. In other words, the Fed will always come up with tools. What surprised the dollar crowd and embarrassed them last year. Now, now they're having another day in the sun because they're saved by another Delta variant. But at the end of the day, you're betting that the Fed and the other central banks won't coordinate a response. And that was from an investor point of view, that that dollar shortage thesis was a, really just a horrific embarrassment, a very unprofitable trade. 
And at the end of the day, the global central banking uh, coordination around swap lines, around emerging market swap lines, around all these creative things the Fed did to, uh, to augment dollars and really just caused that, that whole dynamic, to, to that whole thesis to collapse. And so what, what we've seen is for the last 24 months, the, the dollar has, been, has risen and been bailed out by COVID, by Delta variants. You know, now we have another scare in, in Asia again. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of sad because it's a thesis that gets bailed, by, gets bailed out by exogenous events. And one of these days, the, the planet will normalize out of this, you know, COVID nightmare, uh, this, you know, Brexit's trade wars, COVID's. And when that happens, you know, the dollar's in, in big, big trouble. Thanks, Larry. Uh, Abe, my good friend, Abe, what's up? You got a question for Larry? Uh, you have a question and a comment. Um, George, thank you so much. And uh, Larry, uh, very educational, wonderful uh, insights. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, two things. One, uh, I'm, I'm so glad, Larry, that you um, uh, emphasize the importance of Russia and the Ukraine and really the surrounding areas in terms of commodities. Um, some of you know, I've been I've been moving physical steel for 30 years, uh, 27, 30. I've lost track in that area. So I know um, Russia, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, all of Eastern Europe really, really intimately well. Um, and my family's been in that business since 1960. So um, I suffice to say, I think I've got um, a little bit of um, insight into what's happening. Um, uh, so uh, I'm glad that you kind of uh, set the record straight, because honestly, I've, I've had to listen to so much stupid nonsense around um you know, people talking about, well, it's only this percentage of the total uh, uh, piece for steel production and they only produce this. What they're missing is that all of their production, all of what they're producing is for export. It's not for domestic consumption. It's primarily export. As soon as you start sanctioning um, powerhouses like the Ukraine, uh, not so much that Ukraine is being sanctioned, but because of the war and Belarus and Russia, you're going to have a really big problem on your hands. And by the way, we're seeing it. Um, I can also uh, uh, let you, something else you mentioned. I'll get to my question about the Asian, uh, uh, actually, you, you mentioned a whole issue around supply chain mess. Uh, I can tell you as of last night, um, there's a, there are tens of tens of thousands of containers stuck in factories in Asia, um, all steel-related products destined for the U.S., and the shit has been sitting there for months and months, and there is no hope in hell that these containers are going to be off, uh, unloaded onto a, onto a container ship anytime soon, especially now with what's going on in terms of this COVID scare. So I suspect that that will continue uh, for much longer, further exasperating the whole commodity story. So I just wanted to give you sort of an FYI. This isn't anecdotal. It's real. And I've talked to probably several mills as of last night, as I always do on Sunday. And uh, that's the story that I'm getting from all of these mills. Um, so here's my question. Um, my question is that um, for the longest time, we've been talking about this whole notion of inflation being transitory. Um, we've been fed the uh, narrative, uh, good or bad, that a lot of it is because of supply chain, um, you know, mass as a, re as a result of COVID. And so my question is, 
Um, you know, if the Fed is aware, or at least if the Fed has, has drank the Kool-Aid that, in fact, uh, we have uh, transitory inflation uh, and it's a result of sort of supply shocks um, w- w- and and um, um, and I guess the, 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 the insiders of the question is what um, how effective are going to be uh, our rate increases going to be? given the fact that if you've got exogenous factors that are driving inflation, uh, whether I believe it's transitory and, you know, how long is transitory, I don't know. But how effective is that really going to be if, in fact, that you've got um, exogenous factors that are driving inflation at this juncture? um, And what are they trying to achieve? Or um, has the Fed been delayed in doing anything about it because they drank that narrative and they felt, you know, it's going to come down. And, 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 and I know it's a loaded question, but why the hell would they do anything at this juncture? Um, if, if, um, if they know that they can't really change anything, or is this just a narrative shift that they're trying to, uh, drive in the market, uh, in order to sort of, uh, temper, uh, you know, the fact that we truly have lost this notion of price discovery over the last uh, 15 years. So thank you so much. And I'm sorry if I've sort of uh, jumped all over the place, but all these things are kind of correlated here. Thank you. Hey, what's the question exactly, please? I'm not sure we understand the question. Oh, what's the question, Abe? The question you, is... Just what, be really... Abe, we lost the question in your speech. What's the question, oh, please? The question is, um, if inflation is deemed transitory because of supply shocks all over the world, um, what's the point of increasing rates? Uh, right. yeah, I got it. Got it. Right. What's that? Did you get the question, Larry? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, would, I was answering the. Can you hear? Could you hear? Could you hear the response? Yeah, we can hear you now. I think you were you were muted for. We couldn't hear you before. Go ahead. Okay, so I, I wanted to just thank, uh, you know, thank you guys for bringing up the region because the region, it's not just Russia, Ukraine. It's it's the region and it's insurance companies and it's the it's 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 large, the ability to move products in and out of the region, Belarus, Kazakhstan. It's not just Russia. Ukraine. And that's extremely important for the commodity complex. And so I, I'm just grateful that 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 conversation is is, is out there because it, it's 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 not just Russia, Ukraine. And in terms of the Fed. Yeah. So it's, it's the last like 30, 40 years. We've rarely ha- rarely had inflation that's been driven by uh, supply chains and so and and wars. And so you'd have to go back to the Vietnam uh, where and Neil Ferguson, when he and I sat down, he really stressed, you know, the, the there's one thing more inflationary than, um, than, than, a, than a pandemic. It's a war. And that's because these regions get locked down and insurance companies don't want to insure certain products and certain, certain ships, cargo, flights, everything gets, it's like 9-11. You, like you just can't move things in and out. And so the Fed is... Is, isn't it so half the rate increases in the world came before the war so the, the, the planet was hiking rates aggressively you know literally probably like 70 percent of all rate hikes this cycle happened before the war while the fed was was holding back and there's a there's a reason for that the fed knows that the last cycle they led 
and the, they created this what's called the dollar wrecking ball, had a huge impact on the 2016 election because the Fed was the only central bank in the world aggressively hiking. The dollar ripped in 2014-15, blew up the global economy two to three times in that period. I mean, caused massive disruptions globally. And so this time around, this was a globally coordinated, and when we, we wrote this, we traded off of this. This was a globally coordinated move to have the Fed lay back, uh, aggressively lay back, and let the other central banks do the hiking for the world. And now the, the war hits, to your point, <laughs> and it's a, a massive supply chain war, inflation. And so these, these rate hikes are, are, are it's, it's just, it's, they're just going to bring, and the 530s are telling you this. They're just going to bring forward recession much faster, which will help slow down inflation. But there's at this point, you don't slow down inflation without a recession. That is a key point. Amen, Larry. All right, let's move on. I know Larry's only got like another five or ten minutes. He's very generous with his time, but he has a hard stop at five o'clock. Maybe he can stay a few more minutes, but we're very fortunate to have him. We're going to go to Marcellus and then Sohabe and then Gordon. Marcellus, you're up. What's up, Marcellus? You know what, George? If, if Larry has a hard stop, I, I don't want to bother him with a with a four. Okay. A all, right, all right. That's fine. All right. Sohabe, you're up. What's up, my friend? Uh, no, based off the question, in relation to the dollar, you were saying um, there's just a bunch of other uh, factors that have bailed in, you know, the people out that have been wrong in regards to that. And, and the question is uh, in regards to the hydrocarbon space where you know we've got uh, two years of demand that is not f fully uh, accounted for since we're still in this stage where it's you know uh, out in out in. so in, in regards to um, where you see that uh, and, and people feel that hey you know things are a little bit you know toppy and so forth where there is so much yet to be seen but as a result of, you know, different factors, you know, whether a couple of weeks ago it was the margin changes on the futures. And, and so so I just wanted to get your take in regards to where you think the oil market has been and in regards to the shorts that seemingly have been, you know, bailed out with with uh, d different factors yeah, okay. that, so, that don't really do the oil That's market. a great point. So, so Larry, they, I guess I'll tell you, there's a lot of stuff going on. What's your take on oil right here, Larry? Larry? Well, it's one of the things I wrote about in our book. So I tell my wife once a month, if we sell a million books, we'll break even on our Lehman stock. And the book's in 12 languages now. I was a trader at Lehman. Uh, um, I, I'm one of the few, there's a few of us out there, I'm one of the few strategists that's actually actually taken professional risk. Uh, most strategists and economists have never sat in a risk seat. And so I had a very, you know, painful years of lots of experience on the, on the you know, running risk portfolios. And one of the things that I remember very vividly was in 2008, uh, the market was so tight that, you know, T. Boone Pickens was, was making a fortune. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I had to sit, sit down with him and after my book came out and we had lunch and we had, had a couple of meetings and he brought the point up that the market was so tight supply demand wise that the slightest like one rogue group like the Nigerian rebels could hit a pipeline and the planet was so tight that that, that is it just me or did we lose him? No, I think we lost Hey, Larry. I think he zoned out on us. Larry. Hello. I think we lost him. 
Oh, well. Hey, Gordon, while we're waiting for Larry to come back, Gordon, did you want to say something? Because I don't know if Larry can hear you, but if you want to throw a comment in, Gordon, you have at it. Yeah, so it seems like the, the conversation's on still. I wanted to just get Larry's thoughts on um, pig iron supply from Ukraine and uh, Russia. It seems like pig iron is roughly 62%. Uh, or go, at least go, go, Gordon, Gordon, hold on, hold on, yep. hold on. I think Abe is the one who can answer the question better than Larry because he does that for a living. So, Abe, are you there? Can you hear me, Abe? Yeah, I'm here, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Abe, maybe you can take Gordon's question. Gordon, please give your question to Abe. Yeah, so, uh, thanks, Abe. So, um, based on our math, about 62% of the U.S. pig iron needs come from Russia and Ukraine. Um, clearly, that's been majorly disrupted. We've seen a spike in uh, prime scrap prices. Um, so, one of the questions I got today from somebody that I thought was interesting was, do you think that U.S. Steel and Cliff and the other blast furnace producers are uniquely positioned right now, given they have captive mines in the U.S. and can make um, basically virgin metallics, whereas the EAF mills can't, are they, you know, uniquely positioned to benefit from, you know, um, lower input costs and thus the ability to supply still for lower prices versus their uh, EAF peers? Okay, so that's a great question. And I think I've answered that question in prior spaces. And I'll just tell you what I know on the ground. Um, for the first time in a very, very long time, U.S. producers um, actually, it, to some degree, have a competitive advantage because of this, uh, because of the fact that um, a lot of these uh, countries like the Ukraine is pretty much offline. Um, the uh, the raw materials, uh, because because spot prices, because the prices worldwide have gone through the roof, it is now allowed U.S. producers to actually compete um, on a global uh, level. Uh, even though they really don't give a shit about exporting, they really just want to feed the local market because it's massive. So the answer is yes, um, they are in a competitive position at the moment um, in order to compete, um, even though the cost to their production and the cost of extraction is traditionally much, much higher than what you would find in the, in the Ukraine. The other thing I'll mention is that um, you're going to probably continue to see shortages and I can tell you who's buying all this stuff right now. Like uh, uh, India, for example, is buying every last drop of scrap and billet they can get their hands on. And uh, that's who's buying it. So you got to connect the dots in terms of if you've got sanctioned countries, um, you know, we all know sanctions don't work. Um, and eventually who's buying it? The Far East, the Chinese are also buying this stuff, too. So um, so the answer is Yes. Uh, and we've actually are seeing this on the ground. We actually this is this is a reality now. This is very true. You see it in um, uh, just uh, various uh, uh, U.S. Uh, steel companies, especially those who are vertically integrated. They're going to have a great time uh, for as long as this party continues. And as long as you have elevated raw material pricing because of the fact that you've got shortages all over the world. So, yes. Hey, hey can I ask? Can I ask one more, if, if, if I could? Is that okay, George? Go for it, Gordon. Go for it. Okay, so I guess more specifically, I was trying to trying to get to, like, if, if you're Cliff or X, right, you have, you know, uh, pellet mine capacity here in the U.S. Cliff, uh, Goncava, as you can call him a genius, I call him lucky, but he brought some HVI DRI capacity. So if you have that here in the U.S. and you're a blast furnace, right, if you're, if you're making – Blast furnace still, you're making basically virgin metallic still. If you put a pig iron caster in there, you can produce pig iron here, right? So those guys don't have to buy 
the elevated, you know, price prime scrap and they don't have to buy, you know, HBI DRI from Brazil. Like they, that's what I mean when I say uniquely positioned. I guess what I'm saying is it seems like the, the X's and the cliffs are uniquely positioned even in the U.S. versus particularly the STLDs, but even the Nucors. I know Nucor has DRI production, but it seems like these guys are uniquely positioned even in the U.S. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks. So I don't particularly follow these these two uh, companies that you're you're mentioning. I can only tell you from uh, from from what you've described, the answer would be yes, uh, because again, um, you have to think of things as that globally the prices have gone through the roof. And if you've got supply uh, locally that you can, and especially if you're vertically integrated, then you don't have a problem. Um, the issue that we have today is that even if you can get the product, okay, even if you can get these inputs to production, you can't get them to the U.S. That's the problem. So you've got tens of thousands of containers that are stuck in factory floors or stuck, period, on ships that aren't going anywhere. So just by that alone, you have a competitive advantage. So Abe, 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 if we can just table this right now. Yeah. Uh, Larry, can you, Larry, you're back. We lost you. Are you there, Larry? Larry, please unmute yourself. We can't hear you, Larry. I don't know where you are. We lost you. Got to add him as a speaker. He's he's no, still he, you know, he is a speaker. He is a speaker. We just can't hear him. I don't know what's. But going we can't, on. Uh, George. I can't see him as a speaker. Well, no, he, he shows up to speak online. All the, no, oh, okay. Oh, he's no, no, I, I know what's going on. I know what's going on. Um, Yeah, what's going on is that there might be, um, he's just lagged. So just kick him down and then just bring him back up. All right, so Larry, if you can hear us, I'm going to throw you out as a speaker. And then please ask to be added back as a speaker. It's a quirk of uh, Twitter. Um, while we're waiting for Larry to come back, I'd like to go to George. George, I'll just invite him back in here. Yeah, invite him back up. Shrub, we haven't heard from you. Shrub, you always, my good friend, you always have interesting things to say. Maybe talk about the updated fund flows or anything else that catches your eye. Or you think about laying out shorts again, Shrub. What's up, Shrub? Hey, George. How are you? I'm very well. Um, well, I got a bit of a punch in the face today from my shorts because I, uh, <laughs> well, the NASDAQ just doesn't want to seem to go down here. Um, the flows from last week. So actually, just, just on that point, um, I'm really struggling to understand what the market is playing here. But you have all the Fed speakers and all the, uh, I mean, now we're expecting 50 bit rate hikes. And like Larry said it very, very well, this is the fastest, this is going to be one of the fastest tightening cycles. So I really don't understand what's happening uh, uh, from that perspective. But I guess the pain trade is what the pain trade is. Uh, so on the weekly flow update, what we had last week for the first time, we had an outflow of $3 billion from the U.S. And if you remember, every week we go through this, we haven't seen an outflow for a very long time. So we had $3 billion outflows from U.S. stocks, but actually the large caps had an inflow. Now, the credit side had again an outflow. And this for me, again, when we're discussing when will credit break the equities, the outflows were 11 weeks in a row, which is the longest streak since 2008. And then cash had 13 billion of inflows. And then Bank of America said, oh, this is a contrarian buy signal because people are raising cash to put into equities afterwards. So I'm a bit confused about how people are interpreting the data differently than I am. Um, one, one 
one guy on Twitter said something very interesting though today, which is worth reading out. So he was saying some data that came out from Morgan Stanley that, oh, there it is. So asset managers covered tw 21 billion notional of shorts over the week ended uh, March 24th. So 80% of the shorts established in Q1 have been covered. Now this is Morgan Stanley data came out today. 80% of the shorts established in Q1 have been covered. They covered 21.7 billion of notional of shorts. It was the biggest week of asset manager short covering in US equity index futures since this data was first reported in 2006. Wow, that's huge. That Thanks. is amazing. 64 yeah. billion of the 83 billion of shorts have been initiated over the past six months have been covered. That's, that's it. great. So, Shrub, if you well, wouldn't mind holding it for one second, I'm going to just interrupt because Larry's back in the room and I know he's tight on time. I want, I would like Larry, I, can you hear me now, Larry? Can you hear me? Yeah, hi, George. Yeah, great. So, so we lost you completely. So, somebody had a question. Basically, it was what your take was on the oil market. That was the question, and we lost you. What, what, so, what would you. What's your take on oil now, right now? I just want to quickly remind him where he was, uh, if okay. You were just talking about the Nigerian rebels and Boone Pickens in regards to when the market is tight. So, that's where you left off. Okay. Larry. Thank you. Yeah, so I had dinner with Boone, and he, he, I'll never forget, like, he, he was pounding the table that the market was so tight in terms of global side uh, disruption could really move markets. And, and it's kind of like, I just keep thinking of the movie Star Wars, you know, where Luke Skywalker has, is trying to take down the Death Star, and, you know, he's the, he's the one Jedi to get through and knocks it out, right? So if you think of Aramco, these, the drone technology is getting so much more advanced and they're literally every day, week, month, you're seeing more and more attacks. There was one over the weekend. If they get through, and, and by the way, our friends in Washington have told me firsthand that um, behind the scenes, there's, there's a number of, there's two or three senators that are working with the Saudis behind the scenes and, and Raytheon and trying to get ahead of this, uh, where they need to really work on their defense of Aramco. Because if, if one of these drones gets through and hits them in the wrong spot, it'll be, it'll be like the Nigerian rebels you know, times three, where they took out, the Nigerian rebels were able to take out uh, a pipeline in, in the first, second quarter of 2008. And that's one of the things that contributed to uh, the the recession was you, you you went from like a hundred dollars to 140 in a very short period of time uh, in 2000 first second quarter of 2008 and by the way we're in recession uh, so on, on short covering I want to just I had dinner with Ralph Chiaffi uh, in 2010 he he brought up and I talked about this a little earlier but I think what just happened was just similar to what happened to Bear where Ralph told me that Bear failed in 2007 because all the, the street had so many hedges on so many shorts on to protect themselves against subprime by the fourth quarter of 2007 that when you had this it was just like this i lived through this it was a face ripping rally september october of 2007 it was vertical it was just like this and it was a lot of index short covering and that's why those stats that you just read off from morgan stanley uh, are so vivid because the risk managers had the streets doubling, tripling down on, on shorts 
to protect illiquid portfolios. Uh, so one of the deadly things in a bank is if you're long the illiquid and you're short the liquid, liquid rips in your face, your, your, your illiquid longs aren't moving up enough and then you're forced to just get out of the, you're forced to cover. And I think that's what just happened. And then, of course, when the buy the dip crowd sees this and, you know, th- there's just a gajillion technical analysts on Twitter and they're seeing this kind of this this flow. Right. And to your point, the you know, you guys have been making the point on flows. The flows data is so suspect. I tell you, I've, I've looked at this flows data for 30 years. It's I mean, every every firm has their own prime brokerage data. And, you know, it's it's very suspect. the bottom. And everybody tries to, like you know, turn their data into some, you know, special sauce. And it's a lot of, a lot of bullshit. But at the end of the day, you, I, I, I agree. You had a monster short covering rally. That's picking up technical signals. You have, you know, millions of buy the dippers that uh, are, think that, you know, that are going to try to play this on the long side. And now you're coming into big time supply of the NASDAQ uh, with not just Apple, Tesla. So I'd be very careful. That's great, Larry. Um, so we saw this in 2002. We saw this in 2000. The more vertical Larry, the rally, the more you want to be very, very careful. That's great, Larry. So, Larry, we happen to have in the room, and Jeff, if you could keep it tight because we're short on time, we have in the room probably the, the country's best expert on short selling, Jeff Garbaz from Quantitative Partners, works with Erlanger. He follows shortage of data nonstop, 24-7, and spices and dice it every which way. So, Jeff, you got you got any quick comments? I guess I go short on time to keep it tight. Any any quick comments to add to this point on the short selling? Jeff, are you there? I don't know where Jeff went. All right, I, I'm go. George. I'm George. I'm here. I decided. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jeff, you can give a, a few quick comments, please, because we're short on time. Yeah, well, Morgan, Morgan Stanley's full of you know what because that's not because their data is not correct. And anyone, any, anyone who says that the covering was the greatest since 2006, they're on drugs because they don't understand what happened in March of 2009, which doesn't compare. So here, and they're off on their date. So whoever was quoting the Morgan Stanley stuff, I think you're quoting the wrong thing because the squeeze week was the week ended 318. This last week, there was no squeeze. As a matter of fact, short sellers made money this past week. They were saying the data ended 324. The squeeze occurred the weekend in 318, and type threes, where shorts had been correct, rose 11.96%, which is definitely a really, really, really big week in terms of what happened. But I'll go back to 2009 in a second and show you that it's it's definitely really big, but it's it's not. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, 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 if I can interrupt, you can give the full expose later, just right here, right now, because Larry's short on time. Just give us an inclusion. We can come back to go in deeper later because we only have got Larry for a few more minutes. He wouldn't mind. Yeah. So the conclusion is that if, if there was real short covering, then it should have continued into last week. And that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, my long short tsunami made 6% this last week because short squeezes, names which were being squeezed, were up 4.22. And then where the shorts had correct, they made 1.78. And right. that, that took back half the game from the prior week. The prior week, the long short tsunami was a loss of 11.52. 
a very, very, very painful week. Or that, where... that, that yeah, that, those numbers tell all. That's that's fantastic, Jeff. If you could just stay there, Jeff, just because I'm sorry, to, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm trying to get everybody in here because Larry's been. We're going overtime with Larry, so if you could stay there. I want to hear more from you, but just not right this second. Mind when some yeah. kind of order. Okay, that's yeah, cool. Okay. So all right, so so KFab, um, you always have something interesting to say. Uh, KFab is one of the sharpest guys in the room. KFab, good to see you. You got a question for Larry KFab? Yeah, uh, go, kind of back to the currency markets. Uh, thank, thanks, George. Um, you know, there, I think there's a, a distinction between uh, you know the dollar shortage thesis and then whether or not you know the dollar is going to go up or down versus you know the, let's say the Dixie, which is you know primarily the yen and the euro, and they have their own issues. So, did, 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 Larry, did you have kind of a broader kind of independent of the dollar shortage thesis? Because I agree with you with the swap lines and, you know, from a banking system perspective, they've insulated a lot of things. Um, but just from, you know, other things, the other forces in play, uh, what, what your broader views are with the dollar? Well, Albert Edwards has done a great job. Now, Albert Edwards is actually an amazing currency strategist. Uh, I know people make fun of him on the equity side, but he's made some of the best currency calls and he's a advisor to, to he's a friend we talk quite a bit uh kit jukes old colleague at Sockgen. so they've done a lot of work on the bank of japan but what, what what's happening here this is amazing right so you get this dollar shortage thing right now this is unbelievable every time you get a rally in the dollar the dollar shortage thesis comes out but let's think about what just happened the bank of japan is is going all in. This is the most dovish. They're trying to outdove. This is like a currency war. And, you know, the thesis from Kit Jukes and, and Albert Edwards is that, uh, you know, China, look at CNH ball. CNH ball is you can measure people betting on a weaker, uh, you know, won, CNH. And there are bets. That's so like just like options for stocks. You can see when capital is starting to flow. So this morning, a couple institutions in the chat. We're looking at the CNH fall. It has been moving, breaking out. And so the, the probability of China responding to Japan, what Japan just did to China is, you know, I'm not saying it's a war, like a physical nuclear, you know, like an old traditional war, but it's extremely aggressive. Uh, I mean, very aggressive financial threat to China. If you think of like twenty percent weakness relative to the yuan over the last since you know you two two twenty percent plus I think it's I think it's upwards near thirty of the of the the, the yen versus the yuan so over the, since since two thousand nineteen and most of, a good chunk of that is the last you know three weeks so the probability of China doing some type of deval into that is uh, is, is is giving the dollar a bid because the dollar is in the dollar's bid because obviously Japan is going all in on this kind of like uh, they're trying to use a, a weaker currency to to get out of this deflationary spiral. But to, for the dollar shortage crowd to once again bang that drum with the uh, with what the Bank of Japan is doing and the threat of a devaluing from China, it's just like I mean, it's just like I mean, come on! I mean, this is clearly a Bank of Japan uh, driven. It's it's Bank of Japan plus COVID lockdown. And in, in Asia, in China, which are ex extremely dangerous, deflationary slash, you know, God knows what what China is going to do to respond to this move by the Bank of Japan. 
that's the that's the that's what's happening. It's not so much a dollar shortage dynamic that 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 argument keeps coming back. I, I would say just one last thing, George, on the on the short selling. He, he's absolutely right. Like the last eight, you know, six days, it's not it's not so much a short covering rally anymore. My my point is that the short covering rally got this thing off with a space shuttle type engine, boom, you know, and it created this incredible flow higher. And, and then you had, you know, some, some real momentum by the dippers come in, you know, it's all these arc stocks again, AMC. Uh, and when I'll tell you one thing, when the feds, if you're Jerome Powell and you see Tesla of 42% in, in eight days and you see AMC ripping, you know, this is just going to incentivize the fed to get aggressive. And so let's not kid ourselves that that this that the Fed is going to sit back and take this. Hundred percent, Larry. Going to use, they're going to use this as a, as a, they're going to use this as dry powder. Hundred percent. No, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So hundred percent on that, Larry. Please mute yourself here. Hold on. Um, so Larry, hundred um, percent on that. Listen, um, you're welcome to stay as long as you want. I just want to be respectful of the time. You promised us an hour. You've gone overtime. For everybody to remind them, Larry's got you know over 600 uh, buy side, um, big institutions, high net worth, indiv- high net worth individuals, billionaires, family offices, sovereign wealth funds on his platform. If you're interested, contact him. Uh, as you can see, he's got a very differentiated take on things. So, Larry, I'm giving you permission to leave whenever you want. You're welcome to stay, but I just don't want you to feel obligated to stay. So that that's entirely your call. Um, so, O'Hare, did you have yeah. something you want to say to Larry O'Hare? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me, um, Larry? Given the back, given what you just said, given the backdrop of what you had just uh, talked about, uh, can we? Uh, can you just kind of shed some light on your uh, on what you said at the very top, which was uh, the precious metals space, the sector, the, the the mining stocks, and so forth? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, this is uh, everything was lift off for. The precious metal space, uh, like as of a week ago, this Bank of Japan thing and the threat of a China deval has really is created another buying opportunity. So this this is this is something you see maybe maybe two three times in your career. This type of move by the Bank of Japan, and we saw it in 2014 with Abe and and the, you know the whole election there and the. And, and the new government, the new government, the government has a supermajority in Japan and the, and the Diet and the Congress there. So that was kind of a moment like this. And so gold and silver, you're going to be you're going to get another buying opportunity here because this the, these events in Japan with the lockdown crisis picking up. See, Neil Ferguson's done some great work here and I looked at some of his data over the weekend. So it's, you're, you're picking up lockdown risk in in china and so that's deflationary you look at cnh vol that's picking up that means the, the probability of a potential counterattack devaluation from the yuan uh against japan is right so these are risks that are just like going from like one two percent probability to 10 15 percent probability and so if those things happen short term they will create uh you know a further drawdown and the metals would have been extremely strong um but as, as we look toward the rest of the year, the, as the Fed gets aggressive, you know, with 50 bips, high probability, uh, that brings forward recession risk. Five thirties are telling you the, the, that you're going to have a short hiking cycle and the terminal rate 
and the last cycle was two two and a half, you know, two and a quarter, two and a half. The previous cycles was was much higher. That's the rate where the Fed stops hiking. But the Fed's gonna be forced, as 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 we've been talking about on the call, to hike into a supply chain slash inflation slash like war driven inflation. That so we, we may end up with stagflation <laughs> environment. Oh right? yeah, there's no quite there's, there's, right. stagflation probability is 100. percent So that means your gold and silver buy is going to be a great buying opportunity, and you you had a buying opportunity that was created by the Delta variant. Think about this. this think about this. The last year you had the Delta variant, you had Omicron. Now you have this another COVID. Each time, oil and gold and silver and copper have been an incredible buy. And each time the drawdowns were pretty nasty. Even uranium, we had a we had a couple thirty percent drawdowns in uranium, and this is like strong bull market. So yeah, I would, I but I, I'm a little worried about. I wish I lightened more. We sold some Newmont in the trade. We have trade alerts that go up by a WhatsApp. We sold some of the miners, but I really wish we sold more because this. If China responds, it's uh, it's it's a real deflation scare for the world because they're they're going to counterattack if they counterattack against yeah. Bank of Japan. But I got to go. Thank thanks so much, George. Hey, hey, Larry, you've been terrific. Thanks so much. I hope okay. you come back again. Appreciate okay. that. Thanks. Okay. All right. So um, three aces. Um, welcome. Good to see you, my friend. And by the way, O'Hare, I'm going to have to step away in a few minutes. So if you can drive the bus. So three aces. Uh, good to see you. What's on your mind? What's up, my brothers? Uh, not that I was just sitting listening. I mean, obviously, I have a lot to say, but I want to be careful and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I just look at the world so differently, George. I mean, you know, I didn't want to say anything with our guest here. I mean, he's got a tremendous amount of experience and valuable insight and so on. But I don't think really you know many people are paying attention to what the actual drivers are here i mean you know for six seven eight nine ten years you know all of the gray hairs myself being one of them um you know have been sitting here pounding the table as to how the federal reserve uh has created frankenstein with all this excess liquidity and then you have, you know, again, from a producer of commodities perspective, not a broker and not a trader, not an economist, but from somebody who actually makes the stuff in the field, um, you know, it's crystal clear to me that this, you know, everything bubble liquidity momentum machine has, you know, ran out of things to eat alive, um, such as ARC and the SPACs and, you know, the EVs and all the rest of that garbage that have gone up the way they have and collapsed. You know, it's been pointed at the commodities markets, you know, and, 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 and they're really the, the, the biggest problem that we have now uh, is not so much supply. I understand there are nascent um, issues in Ukraine and, you know, less than 1% of the world's wheat supply coming out of Russia and Ukraine or being exported out. Um, you know, but but the material issue, those are all technical facts and they're all real. You know, but it's like if you're negotiating contracts or in law or anything else, there's technical and material stuff. And, and nobody's talking about the materiality of, of the matter. And the materiality here is the pricing you know, mechanisms for everything are broken. You know, the pricing mechanism for real estate, for stocks, for for bonds, for now it's finally hit 
uh, you know, the, the commodities market and everybody's sitting here, all of the gray hairs and all of these guys with the books and everything else are getting sucked right into it. Um, you know, but the reality of it is, is it's all the same problem. The same problem is the Fed and Dr. Frankenstein and this massive excess liquidity that's in the system. Right. And, you know, these markets are tiny, tiny, tiny little markets. They can't handle the machines the way the way some of these other yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, three ices. You and I look at the world summarily, and I think you just got to be in a situation. You got to be expect the unexpected. I mean, there's just so many disparate forces. I mean, the Canadian oil mafia could be completely right on oil, but if you have some speculator, whatever, some big trading house, a hedger, whatever, get caught the wrong way and they get liquidated. I mean. You could have oil drop like 30 bucks just like that, as we saw two weeks ago. So I think fundamentally we're all in agreement. The problem is life is not linear, and it's environments like this where you have a lot of stresses and strains where anything can happen. And um, so, no, that's an excellent point, Therese. I really appreciate that. Shrub, are you there, Shrub? You were... Um, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah, you, you were speaking very eloquently as you do on, on flows, and I cut you off. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I was just going through this uh, Morgan Stanley data, uh, which, you know, again, the, the flow data, like um, the gentleman earlier said, you know, the, the, way, the way to use them is I, I usually stick to the, Morgan, to the Bank of America ones because I've been tracking them for years and I, I trust how, uh, Michael Harden and his team to at least, uh, you know, get the data right. But the important thing is the direction. So the way to use the data is, Get the direction right and the sentiment right. So that's how you use it. So, for example, having 11 weeks of outflows in credit is important. Having no outflows from equities is important. It shows that, you know, this thing, oh, everyone is bearish. It's bullshit, right? It's bullshit. When you see no outflows in equities, it, it, it doesn't mean that... <laughs> It means that people are still bullish, right? So that's the first thing. The cash balance is increasing. I understand. Sure, that's cash on the sidelines. Fine. Uh, but then this latest data from Morgan Stanley, which I rarely use, but uh, you know, it just popped up today. Um, it said that 80% of the shorts initiated in the last few months have been covered. Again, it's the direction of travel from their prime, uh, prime broker customers. Um, which to me, by the way, it shows me that, uh, you know, that's less protection in the system. And actually that's something I want to check because I need to check the, check the put call ratio, how it changed over the last few days. But, you know, it shows that hedge funds are, uh, taking out protection. And when you don't have protection, oof, you know, when the market turns, uh, it exacerbates the, the effect, uh, uh, on the downside. Um, uh, you know, just judging from my own book, I up to Friday, I was doing actually uh, extremely well on the longs and the shorts. I was behaving well. Uh, and today was just an unwind day. I mean, today was a very bad day for someone long uh, commodities and short tech. So I don't know if there's a bit of an unwind from the hedge fund side as well from this point. Yeah, who knows? All right. So listen, O'Hare is uh, you and I spoke before. Um, I need to uh, leave. Um, and I don't know how long I can leave my phone on. It may, I don't know how long it's going to last for, but I'm going to leave it in your capable hands to uh, uh, host from, from here on. 
Um, I wish everybody good night. And O'Hare, you drive the bus. It's all yours. I'll, I'll leave my phone on. Let's see how long the, the battery goes for. Go for it, O'Hare. Yep. It's all yours. No sweat. We'll just take. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. O'Hare, who are you going to call on to speak? It's yours. You're your moderator. All right. So who's next? My phone just crept out. I think Mr. Wu is up. I think Mr. Wu shit, Woodshed was up. All right. Let's go. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You can hear me, yeah? Thanks, uh, thanks, George, for put, putting on another good space. As you always get the good, the the, the best guests. Shrub, a question for you, or even Thomas, if you ever come up. Uh, you mentioned you had a short Nasdaq position or tech position. I'm just thinking shorter term. I know a lot of people are macro bearish, but shorter term, is it more about watch what they do and not watch what they say? Look, the Fed Fed are peak hawkish right now. Or what have they done? 25 basis points. The balance sheet's not going down. And if they act the risk in Ukraine and Russia doesn't get any worse, which it's looking like at the moment, then potentially this rally could have legs up until May. And then if they do QT and or, and or 50 basis, then the things could change. But I just want to get your opinion on that piece. Yes. Of, you know, watch what they do, not what they say. Sure. I mean, to start with, I, I haven't been net short uh, for a very, very long time. So I'm running a book that's about 30, 40% net long right now. Um, so I'm just making that clear. So I was 10% net long a few weeks ago, and now I was 30, 40% net long. So I'm never, you know, uh, I'm never in a very net short position. So that's, that's not what I do. Um, but why do I have the short? Why don't I just choose to be 100% long? So the short, I have it for various reasons. Um, first of all, the technicals suggest me that I should be cautious. Just uh, I, I like uh, looking at the technicals. You know, there's some technical signals there for me. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, I think the Fed being behind the curve and also indicating that they need to tighten with I, – I expect them to do 50 bips or more in the next couple of meetings. And I thought the market wasn't prepared for that, but it looks like they might be prepared for that. And thirdly, I think the QT, uh, we spent a lot of time analyzing the QT impact. Um, I really think the credit market, that's why you have the outflows in the credit market and that's why you have certain cracks showing there. Uh, the credit market is telling everyone that QT could be a potential disaster, but no one seems to care. So. I see the equity market as, you know, a tranche in the capital structure of the economy. So it tells me that I should be hedging some of my equity exposure. And, you know, that, that's why I have it on. And to be honest, I'll be, I'll be clear. You know, I've been wrong for the last uh, 3 4%. Does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts a bit. I mean, you know, I lost uh, a few percent of my performance. I don't care. Um, but, you know, do I take it off like the hedge funds? No, I'm not going to take it off because but, it's my but, capital. But, you know, Shrub, I'm protecting ask, my own capital. Uh, Shrub, <laughs> let me ask you. You made a statement. Sure. You made a. You just said uh, you think the equity markets are ready for that uh, 50 basis point, uh, multiple 50 basis point uh, Fed hikes. I'm not so sure. I mean, no, sorry, sorry. Uh, let me just clarify. I yeah, yeah exactly. I just said, it. yeah, I right. said that it. I didn't think they were prepared, but they are behaving like they're prepared. <laughs> sure, that's, that's right. Okay, good. Yeah, because you know, I mean, if you take a look at what's been going on in the last say week. 
you know, we're, 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 we're kind of, in my mind, you know, the stuff that I'm looking at, we're kind of running on fumes. I mean, take a look at the action today, right? It's just a select group of stocks, the same things that's been working, uh, you know, uh, similarly over the last uh, couple of years, you know, the, the meme stocks, uh, the large cap, mega cap uh, tech stocks, the SaaS stocks, everything else was, 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 was horrible the last uh, few days. So oh, I'm not I sure agree. the market as a whole is, is ready for uh, rate increases. I, it's a very interesting market. I have, I'm, you know, we got Danny Moses in, in the space. I'm hoping to try to get him in here, uh, pick his brain a little bit, but um, you know, I, I think that's, uh, you know, so I'm glad you clarified that because I, I agree with you. I, I think that the, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very strange time that we're in. It's hard to kind of put your finger on any one, you know, specific thing that's going to drive this market higher or lower. Yeah. Real, real, real quick, O'Hara, on a technical point, um, I know a lot of people have been talking about the Fed balance sheet still growing, even though they said they had stopped buying assets. And I forget his handle exactly, but a, a guy who used to work at the New York Fed, New York Fed, I think he's Fed Guy Twelve or something on Twitter, um, uh, posted about it. There's a technical aspect to MBS contracts uh, that while they've likely already concluded the purchases they don't settle for a longer you know an extended period of time so likely what people are you know uh ascribing to conspiracy theories that the fed's buying things still even though they said they've stopped is likely a, a technical aspect relative to these mbs settlements right no that's a good that's a good point so uh we have danny in here he just uh, stepped up to speak so danny uh go ahead and unmute yourself maybe give yourself a quick intro I've listened to your, uh, uh, I've listened to you on um, uh, Dami's uh, Spaces and in your yeah. podcasts, which are hey, fantastic, O'Hare. by the way. So, why don't you give us a little background and then give us your take on what's going on in the last couple of weeks? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I just wanted to mention real quick the room may end soon. Oh here, just giving you a heads up. That's it. Uh, back to you, Danny. Uh, thanks, yep. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah, good. No, no. So yeah, I obviously worked in the hedge fund industry for years. Saw the end of the world almost happen. <laughs> may left the hedge fund industry in kind of 2016 and 17 because I gave up trying to fight the Fed with Porter and Vinny and trying to trade banks and financial service stocks where the yield curve is obviously being pre predetermined was hard. So um, been looking at it from a different lens, the market for the last few years, really got reengaged about 18 months ago, watching the meme stocks run, everything that Larry was talking about and, and George and the previous guys, I to- totally agree with. This is the most unhealthy rally, if you want to call it that, that I've probably have ever seen. I think a lot of it is quarter end type stuff. A lot of hedge funds caught off guard. You guys were just mentioning short interest and, you know, last in first out type shorting. I think there's a lot of redemptions that hedge funds had to have to adhere to for quarter end. They were probably waiting, thinking that the shorts would continue to underperform and they didn't. Um, so none of this to me is, is very healthy. I don't think the Fed, you know, while the market's pricing in eight, nine, 10 hikes, the, you know, overall they're expecting it when it actually happens, I think it'll be a punch in the face. I think that the, MBS stuff that we're seeing is reinvestment proceeds still coming in, right? Because they haven't started QT, obviously. And so the still runoff can be reinvested there. I mean, I'm watching the 30-year yields move relative to 30-year mortgage moves. And obviously, the mortgages are moving, um, yields are moving much higher. 